everybody, this is Joel Hookster of Whitesnake, and you're listening to Focus on Metal. Hey, Metalhead, Scott Thompson here, welcoming you to yet another episode of Focus on Metal. And this week, we are bringing you Kerrang! Episode 10. And this week, we have a pretty uh, pretty cool guest that Richie was uh, extremely excited to finally get on the line, and that is the legendary Mick Wall. And Mick is not only legendary, he's also an extremely busy guy, so Richie was only able to get a uh, very small interview with Mick. And so the original plan was to actually combine this interview with Mick with another one on the next episode of Kerrang!, but uh, then, in the meantime, Richie had this great idea to uh, call our perennial guest, Joel MacGyver, up and talk to him about Mick and Krang and all that good stuff. And why? Because uh, Joel is a co-host of a, uh, I can't really call it brand new, but a new podcast that he does with Mick called Dead Rockstars. So uh, who better to talk about his experience with Kerrang and his experience with Mick Wall than the uh, the one and only Joel MacGyver. So that's what we got for you this week. You got Richie and Joel talking all about Kerrang and uh, and Mick Wall, and then uh, Mick Wall himself talking about himself and Kerrang. And I will give the uh, quick apology right up front that whenever you do international calls and you're doing it over cell phones, audio can be uh, funky. So I did my best to try to clean it up as much as possible, make it as clear and as enjoyable as possible. But I do have to confess there are some rough patches here in there in it but uh, with all that out of the way why don't i turn it over to uh to richie and joel macgyver hi joel hey no you're all right how's it going no good things good with you yeah I'm fine thanks one of the things i want to talk about with you is um like wh- when did you start buying Kerrang? can you remember i remember actually when i was 17 so fairly late in the day 1988 was that the only magazine you were buying back then? Or did you buy Metal Hammer or anything else? No, that was the only one. Because Metal Hammer back then was really crap. It was really hard to read. They had like um, black print on blue blue photos, that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. Because I remember, I think I was, I think I started buying in 87. I'm I'm 47 years old. That's You're the same age as me, aren't you? I'm the same, yeah. Yeah, yeah so I started buying it in like 87, 88. And, yeah, yeah. Um, were there any particular writers back then that you really admired? Uh, from Kerrang? Yeah. It was uh, Xavier Russell. What was um, The guy who used to do the double Ks on everything. Mm-hmm. And I always loved Sylvie Simmons' stuff as well. I always have done ever since, uh, you know, and the stuff she does for other magazines too. And yeah. Mick as well. Mick always cracked me out with his crazy, stupid sense of humor. Yeah, yeah. Well, we, Xavier's one of the guys we actually interviewed, and he was he was very funny. Oh, that's cool. That's great. That's great. Yeah, he's um, he ended up being more of a trash metal guy, which probably that's probably why you uh, gravitated towards him. Yeah, yeah, he definitely was. He just uh, his writing was so ridiculously over the top. It was hilarious. I love it. Yeah, yeah. So, how many of these guys from back then, Joel, do you actually know now? All the writers in Kerrang. Would you know most of them now? You've met them or you've worked with them? Um, yeah, some of them. Mick Wall's obviously the one I know best. Uh, I know Jeff Barton, I know Dave Ling, uh, I know Malcolm Dome, never met Xavier, I've met Sylvie a couple of times, she's lovely, and who are the other big names that I'm missing? I've never, I haven't met John Hotton, haven't met Derek Oliver, um, or Harold Johnson, but I've met the majority of them, I would say, by now. What about Stefan Shirazi? Oh, Stefan, yeah, I've met him, he's lovely, so yeah, I met him at, um, the, the first time I met him was at the Big Four show in Poland, which was what? 2011 now? Yeah, yeah. Are there any particular bands that a writer in Kerrang pushed you towards that you absolutely love? Was there lots of them or is the one that stands out to you? That's a good question. Probably Iron Maiden, I would say, because they always had those amazing front covers. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, they, the, the very first big metal gig I saw was Donington and HGI, which made an headline on the Seventh Sun tour. And uh, I remember the run-up to that quite clearly. Um, so there's definitely them. I remember reading quite a lot about Deep Purple and Metallica. Uh, and really, when you said you wanted to talk to me today about 
Kerrang and the A2, the point that I think is most important that I would like to make is that you had all this incredible range of stuff, which I love. So it wasn't just metal. You had a lot of rock in there. You had, you had a lot of prog. You had Marillion and you had Rush. Um, and then there was a period when they went completely away from metal and started putting print and whatever in there um, before they kind of got back on the straight and narrow. But when you ask about uh, who, which band it was, my, my answer is, well, the point is there's so many different bands. I remember reading about Burzum uh, for the first time and the Norwegian Black Metalers. And I remember reading a lot about Spider Death Metal. You had Morbid Angel in there. Um, so loads of bands, loads of different... That was what made it so cool. There was loads, loads of different groups in that. Yeah, was there any particular writer that you really admired back then that if he gave a review... If, and you didn't know the band, you'd say, right, I like this guy, he knows what he's talking about, I'm going to buy the album. All of them, mate. No, it was all of them. They all had an air of authority, and because I was just a teenager, and because they were published in Kerrang, their word was like God to me, you know, gospel. Um, so I, I didn't have a particularly favourite writer, I knew all their names, um, but uh, no, they, they were all very, very authoritative to me. Yeah, it, it, it's amazing, like, when... I picked a brain on a lot of stuff. Like a lot, a lot of it, we as fans still remember. They've just completely forgotten about all of it. And I bring it up, and and they just go somewhere with, oh yeah, that's right. And then they'll go off on a tangent about some other band and whatever. Like the, the access these yeah. guys had back then was incredible. Yeah, well, they, they, they were the only mag of their kind, um, so they were globally popular, which meant that people fought to get into those, to get into those, um, yeah, magazines. That reminds me of something. Uh, I worked on a record collector magazine uh, for a few years, years ago, and they had this basement. And about the year 2002, I went down there and I had a look around, and they had a complete run of Kerrangs, all in pristine condition from issue number one all the way up to what was then about 2002. I used to go down there at lunchtime and just go to the 80s and just read them, and I was insane. All these mags were unread, they're in perfect condition. Wow. And uh, I just used to sit there, and it was the 80s again. It was amazing. Wow. I wonder how much that had to go enemies now. Well, they had enemies, enemies and murder makers going back to the 50s and 60s. Well, nuts. Wow. <laughs> I wish I had kept a lot of mine, Joel. You know, as grown ups, like, yeah, yeah. it's like the vinyl stuff, you know? It's like, oh, great. Yeah, yeah. I wish I kept the yeah, vinyl. It's and a proper I... artifact, isn't it? Yeah. Very nostalgic. Yeah. Like that stuff for you now, I, I know a lot of it is on the web, but a lot of that stuff for you would be gold for research if you're doing a book. It is, mate. And um, a lot of it, um, interestingly, has has come out again in the form of rock candy. Have you heard of that magazine? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, bu- I buy it. It's great. Yeah. They basically, those two guys who run it, Tal Johnson, Malcolm, and uh, one of the other, Derek Oliver, is it? Yeah, Derek. They, they're something to do with um, rock candy records, aren't they? So they very cleverly got together all the text that they that they used to burn in the and they just put it back together because they know that people like me and you will read it. And I love reading it. It's just amazing. And again, the new one's just come out. It's got Queen on the cover. Yeah. So Queen would totally have been in Kerrang back then. You know, there's no reason why not. And uh, I can't imagine Queen being in Kerrang now. <laughs> yeah. I remember one of the uh, one of the, one of the things I was talking to. Uh, I think it was Crusher. I interviewed. He was he was nuts. He was he was great. And um, he said he was one of the guys that put prints on the cover. Do you remember that one? Yeah, I remember that cover, like I was saying. Yeah, yeah. I'm quite sure I had a lot of say when it came to the editorial um, direction of the mag. And uh, interesting. I've met him a couple of times. Interesting man. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Man, the legend. So yeah. I, I don't think nowadays uh, journalists or magazines go on to be uh, styled in their own right as much as they used to back then. Yeah, yeah. One of the things Crusher was saying, like, was how how antiquated it was to do the magazine compared to now. It's all called oh, yeah. pace now, but back then it was like Stone Age stuff, like rubbing sticks together to start a fire. Oh, mate, they used to use letter set back then to put the page numbers on. I swear. Yeah. And like, like you can buy, you know, for your kids when you're a child. Yeah. And um, they used to have this thing called linotype, which is essentially a big scanner, so you'd have to scan everything in. And um, in this kind of like ridiculously antiquated way, whereas nowadays you just design a PDF and send it off to the line. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it's all it's a bit, <laughs> but it's fun, you know. It's fun to think back to those times. Yeah. The, the one thing I did ask Crusher when I was speaking to him was, um, 
and I had him on because, and I knew he did it. Why did you put the likes of yellow writing on a lime green background? <laughs> and he said, yeah, you made some fucking stupid decisions back then. But it's just like, they, they did it because they could get away with it. No one was going to tell them not. Um, that logo, when it when the logo had that kind of spiking, flaming kind of part, I loved it. It was so over the top, it was ridiculous. And let's not forget that the actual title itself was complete nonsense. Mm. You know, a, a, you know, a guitar does not make a noise like Kerrang. And uh, but but why not? What the hell? You know, and you have a magazine with an exclamation mark in its title. Well, I love it. You know, you, you won't get that again. I think that was a unique time. Yeah, yeah. So, Joel, when did you get off the Kerrang bandwagon? I stopped buying it probably around ninety two or ninety three. Oh yeah, thankfully, uh, grunge came along. Basically, took a lot of fun out of it. Um, although I enjoyed grunge. Uh, I didn't really need to sort of read about it every week in the way that I, you know, so, but I think if you're the same age, you really understand what happened, you just kind of grow up with it, don't you? You don't yeah. need your sort of weekly six as much as you do. You still love the music just as much. But you've got a life now, and you've got stuff to do, and I started reading the NME a little bit, and the Murdy Maker and stuff, trying to get into the sort of, you know, because I was interested in, in a lot of other music as well. And, you know, metal was changing its stride, so I wasn't quite as interested as I was. Uh, Kerrang! itself changed in it, sort of, I don't know. I felt too old to read it. Basically, it sort of it did what it what it should have done, which was which was focus on a slightly younger audience than I was. And uh, yeah, I'm not, not, that's not its fault at all. I mean, it's still early enough to all these years. Yeah. I I grew out of its target market basically. Yeah, I think one of the things of talking to the writers, um, a lot of them had left anyway. Like they tried to go to Raw yeah. magazine, but some of them that stayed there, they got ostracized and kind of ridiculed because of the music they wanted to cover and they didn't run a lot of the yeah. interviews that they did and I thought that was pretty pretty sad in the end. I mean the politics was a nightmare. If you um do you know a writer called Neil Daniels? Yeah. I know Neil, yeah. So he did a book a few he did he did a couple of books. And I think it's called I can't remember what they're called, but they're like interviews with journalists. All guns blazing Joel, all guns blazing. Yeah, yeah. All pens blazing maybe yeah, yeah like that. Actually, I'm in one of them, and um, he got hold of all the ex-Kerrang guys, and they all tell their story really, really well in those books. Um, uh, all these years later, they're able to sort of open up about the nightmare that the politics that existed, and how they let each other's throats, and the management were causing a problem. And so, if you want to, someone someday should do the full inside story of Kerrang and Nature and turn it into a book. Yeah. Uh, Neil's done a really good job, though. So, yeah, I'm going to dig those out and have a look because they'll explain it in great detail. Yeah, it's interesting because a lot of the writers I've interviewed, they said nobody, they can't think of anyone who's done a real in-depth project like mine on, on the magazine because I've spoken to 10 of the writers now. And, yeah, um, I did. We spoke to Jeff Barton. Je- I asked Jeff. I don't think Jeff wants to do it. No, a little bit. Have yeah. you, you contacted him? Yeah, I have a couple of times. Yeah. Oh, well, if he doesn't know it, then we'll do it, but... He's interviewed in, I think, Neil Burke, and uh, talks quite a lot about it, but um, he's probably sick of talking about it, to be honest with you. Yeah. But, um, yeah, 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 if you've got stuff from the rest of them on board, then you've got the basic story. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, it was a handful of mag. It's just, um, it's, uh, I think people are just starting to understand its, it's uh, importance, actually, now. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about Mick Wall. Um, what, yeah. did you, what did you like about Mick's writing back then? Yeah, it was the same as it is now. It was totally sort of disrespectful and like kind of like um, irreverent, you know. So he had the balls to uh, to call things stupid and call people idiots, you know, when they were, uh, which a lot of writers did not, and a lot of writers still do not. Nick had this kind of fuck you attitude, which uh, came through very clearly. Um, and he was authentic as well. He uh, A lot of the writers, actually, a lot of metal writers were like me, you know, they're kind of middle class. Um, not that that's a terrible thing, but it doesn't mean that we're all part of a sort of similar demographic. Nick was was a street guy, um, and he came up uh, from a position of pretty dire kind of poverty, as he'll tell you, uh, when he was when he was just becoming a writer, and and that gave him a certain I don't know a certain authority, I think, um, and a certain clarity. And uh, it's even funny. It's like the other thing is that Nick is really funny. This podcast that I do in every week, I crack up because the guy. Very, very amusing. You know, he's done um, quite a few sort of one-man shows for a reason. He's very entertaining. Um, so yeah, mixed stuff is always brilliant. Uh, and but but to be honest, they had a pretty crack 
team of writers. You know, there's a lot of great writers on there who all kind of like me. Uh, they were funny, you know, and, and sort of irreverent and uh, had a stupid sense of humor that's made everyone laugh. Nick returned the other day, so he did that whole section called uh, View from the Bar. Yeah. And uh, I didn't know that. I just remember reading View from the Bar as a kid and just cracking up because it was, um, uh, it was so, like, scurrilous. Uh, it just gossiped, like, maliciously about people. Who doesn't love reading that? And uh, Nick was telling me the other day that he wrote all that stuff, which, uh, it's yeah. made me laugh, and of course, I, I don't know, I know you never do. I understand that pretty well. Yeah, it's it. One of the things Crusher said to me when I, because I, I, I talked to a few of the guys about View from the Bar. Did they ever get into any trouble over it? And they yeah. said they probably got into trouble every issue that they released. Well, I don't know that. I mean, they were always pretty careful, I think, not to actively like, libel people, but uh, it came close. Yeah. It came very close. I admired that. I admired that kind of fearlessness. Yeah. I think. I think so. One of the things the magazine had back then was um, it had a fair amount of power. There wasn't a lot of competition, so I'm not saying they could get away with that, but they could print it, knowing that the record companies kind of needed the magazine a lot. I, you know what? I don't think people thought it through to that extent. I don't know if they actually thought to themselves, "Yeah, we'll probably be alright." They just went ahead and did it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they just went. I don't think they were thinking this through. I don't think anyone thought this was going to be a long-term career. You know, they're thinking, oh, I want to ascend the corporate ladder. Um, half of them didn't stay down it's very long. They went off and did other things. So um, I think it was just a sort of a, a unique kind of flash in the pan thing that moment. Um, I mean, what are we saying? When was this golden era, sort of 84, 85 to, to 88, 89, that kind of time? Yeah. When it hit its stride and, um, and sort of started to flex its muscles and stuff. Um, yeah. I and I, I said it before, I don't think that time will be repeated. So, let's talk yeah. for a couple of minutes we've left about dead rock stars. Um, whose idea was it? Was yeah. it you or Mix? Uh, it was my idea. I was driving along thinking uh, we should do a podcast. Um, and that idea popped into my head. And I suggested it to Nick and he was all, over, he was all for it. You know what I mean? But um, the difficulty that we had was who's going to produce it? You know, we're just going to be sitting around a, a microphone. That's not going to work. We need a professional... Uh, studio to record it. I happened to be introduced to Ian Callahan, our producer at Seven Digital, by a really good friend of mine called Scott Bartlett, who used to be Iron Maiden PR. Scott's mm-hmm. a bit of a legend in our industry. Um, uh, Ian was really into the idea. Uh, we couldn't think of a better name than Dead Rock Stars. Um, we were laughingly saying, you know, you can't buy all dead people, so let's just talk about dead people, right? That would be the edge, that would be the sort of, the, not the edge, the, 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 the US in of the, of the podcast because everyone does a podcast now mm-hmm. and then um, so we just went into it we, we spoke to the and the producer um, arranged to come to the studio on a regular basis we didn't plan it at all the other thing to do was do Lemmy first and I think I wrote two, two lines of an intro and off we went and um, it was hilarious we were taking the piss and actually I <laughs> I took the piss out of Nick insanely for the first three or four or five ones just to wind him up because he's brilliant when he's wound up, mm-hmm. but I backed off a little bit because I think I was starting to piss him off. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the very recent uh, episode has been a little bit calmer, but we've fallen into the stride of just, just being ridiculous and being stupid, and, uh, uh, and at the same time, paying a lot of tribute to these people, and, and when a poignant moment comes up, as it will often, because this is the rock stars they're talking about, yeah. um, we, we pay our respects in a very serious way. And, um, you know, these are people uh, that one of us, or both of us, uh, have met, for example, as we did recent uh, Pantera one we did. Yep. Um, but more often it's, it's people that make them um, because we've been doing this, you know, 20 years longer than me. Um, so, uh, you know, we did full lineup. Um, we, uh, we did DO. I've met DO, but Nick knew him much better than I did. And yeah. so uh, it's most of it has been about me asking Nick about his sort of experiences with these people. But there's, um, it goes both ways as well. We, we talk about people like that as well. Yeah. But, um, it's great, man. I'm, I'm glad you like it. And in its second or third week, it got um, God, uh, podcast of the week in The Guardian. Great. Uh, which was a big deal. You know, we loved it. And um, it, I, I write for The Guardian, but this wasn't anyone I knew. It wasn't a sort of a nepotistic thing that I... I yeah. sat up. It was, uh, it was just someone who came out of the blue and said, said she wanted to do a podcast here, which is really, really good. Yeah, but one of the so things... Yeah, 
Yeah, one of the things I have to, I envy Joel about you, like I had four, about 35 or 40 minutes with Mick. I could have listened to him for seven hours tell stories about all these guys. Oh, dude, well, you, you know how this thing started, Mick, 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 Mick I told you. Um, he and I have gone for a party about every six months, and we have done for years. And basically, it's just anecdotes about these people. The way, the way Mick talks in the podcast is the way we're talking while we're getting pissed and eating curry. <laughs> um, these stories blow my mind. But it's, the tip of the iceberg is what we've heard, is what people have heard so far in there. However many episodes are out, it's like 10 out, I think, at the moment, 10 or 11. Um, so I, that was why I thought, man, you know, we should really turn this into some sort of podcast. Instead of me and him just sitting there laughing our balls off by ourselves in a curry house, we should actually make it something that goes out to the public. And that is literally the origin of this podcast. It's not more sophisticated than that. The idea is to have the pair of us just being dicks and talking about crazy things that happened and turning it into a podcast. And people seem to like it, so... Uh, so it's good. In fact, we hit 50,000 streams the other day, uh, which is oh. pretty good, considering we've only been online for a couple of months. Yeah, how many episodes do you record in one go? You don't do one a week, do you? Two. No, you do two. Two. Uh, because we both don't live in... Neither of us live in London, and the studio is quite a long way away from our home. Um, we find the day, and we go in, and we've got a three-hour slot with Ian, and we do uh, two podcasts, each of which takes uh, an hour to do. So we have a little break between them. And then Ian will do an edit, which takes it down to 45 shots a minute or whatever. Okay. Um, but yeah, no, it's a brilliant system. We're very lucky to have Ian. I want to make it, make it, uh, make it very clear that Ian Callahan is, is the man, our producer. He really, really knows his music. Um, he's made it very easy for us to sit there and talk bullshit. And uh, yeah, so it's, it's very much a free person effort. Yeah, you've, you've no shortage of um, people to talk about, Joel. Well, that's a sad thing, isn't it? You know, a lot of people died. You know, a lot of people will die who are worth talking about. People are very affectionate about it. And uh, we have tried to be fairly diverse in our coverage. Uh, so one uh, which is going up online this week is Sandy Denny, the folks in the Fairport Convention, mm-hmm. um, and which, which is a bit of a change, more sort of head-banging blokes we've been telling lately. Um, we've done a Hendrix one, we've done a Kurt Cobain one. Um, there's, there's all the obvious people that you can think of are coming out, you know, yeah, we could go and go with this. And uh, that's actually a sad thing, you know, there's, there's such a very shortage of material. Yeah, the one the, the one guy I, I'd love the two of you to talk about, because I know Mick has a history with him, is Steve Clark from Death Leopard. Oh, yeah, it's on the list. We will do it. Um, Mick and Ian really well. I mean, we've had a lot of people come to us on the, uh, on the social media asking for a Steve Clark one. And uh, I never met him. But I'm a bit, I'm just a fan of 80s Leopard as everybody, so I'm looking forward to that. Yeah. So, Joel, what, what books do you have coming out? Do you have any coming out between now and the end of the year? Uh, two learn, but I've got three coming out in 2019, and uh, the one which I can tell you about is the autobiography of John Mayall, which I know I've talked to you about before. Yeah, you have. Um, the, blue, the old blue guy. Yeah, we talked about that 15 years ago when I started working on it. Anyway, finally it's done, and uh, it's with the publisher, and it'll be coming out next year. Okay, you still doing that? Couple more, which I will. Uh, couple more, which I'll let you know about. The big, big heavy metal one. Yeah, you still doing bass guitar magazine? Yeah, still editing bass guitar every four weeks. I'm still writing for the Guardian and Telegraph, uh, and for a ton of magazines. Still compiling albums for you know record companies, left, right, and centre. Um, just did a big uh, Alan Parsons project for Sony a while back. Um, uh, what else? And a ton of stuff. I just did a big writing. Thing. They reissued a cool album by your and I was doing the uh, liner notes for that. So there's no end of stuff to do. Um, yeah, <laughs> setting it all in. It's just time management, isn't it, really, at this point? Yeah, you got to uh, you got to catch up to Martin Pop off again, get some more books out. I never will, man. That guy is a machine. <laughs> you know, and he also, well, Martin has a really successful self-publishing company going on. Yeah. And uh, he, he uh, knocks out really good books and he sells them to, to people who are very loyal, um, and he sells out. He does a great, great job, that guy. He's a really good friend of mine, and uh, I admire him a lot for all of Yeah. All right, Joel, well, I'm going to leave Thank you go. Thanks. And thanks very much for talking yeah, to me. No, 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 it's always a pleasure to talk to you, man. All right, Joel, all take right, care. Well, all right. All right, mate, great to speak to you. Bye-bye. All right, big thanks to uh, the one and only Joel MacGyver for once again coming on the show and uh, allowing us to pick his brain on uh, on all things metal. And of course, you can uh, hit up Joel. He's at uh, joelmacgyver.co.uk. You can see his writing in The Guardian as well as on uh, Bass Guitar Magazine. And obviously, you can hear him along with our next guest on the uh, new podcast, Dead Rock Stars. And you can find that where you find Focus on Metal over on iTunes. 
iTunes, as well as a whole bunch of other uh, podcast services. And if you want to hit them up on Facebook, it's facebook.com slash deadrockstars666. And now, ladies and gentlemen, Mick Wall. Hello. Is that Mick? Yeah. Hi, Richie. How you doing, Mick? Nice to talk to you. Nice to talk to you, too. Can you just quickly tell me, Mick, how you got got to work for Kerrang? I first started writing for Kerrang just before Christmas 1983. And... Um, it, it, it was strange in some ways that it took me so long because I was part of the origins of Kerrang. I don't know if you know this story because God bless Jeff Barton. You know, he, he, he has his own version of events. But I can tell you categorically what happened. And uh, it, it, I worked for Sounds Magazine. I wrote for Sounds Magazine, um, as did Jeff and lots of people that were involved in the launch of, not the launch, but the origins of Kerrang, um, which as you probably know, had had two first issues, in fact, in effect. But um, what used to happen was in our office, we covered punk, we covered metal, we covered uh, funk, soul, reggae, anything, you know. And so there was a guy in the office who used to cover the reggae. And although he was a reggae fanatic, he was quite a white, middle-class English guy. And whenever the phone rang in his part of the office, kind of to kind of give an idea of, you know, which part of the office you'd reached, he used to answer the phone and go, bom bom diddly <laughs> as in, you know, reggae. bom bom But mockingly with this very middle-class accent. And then there was Gary Bushell, who at the time was very involved in what in those days was known as boy music it was a it was a sort of a post-punk uh really accentuated the london hardcore working class aspect of punk which was only one facet of that diamond but that was the one he was focused on at the time and he'd coined the phrase um oi like oi rock i don't know what it's just oh, i think it was just called oi <laughs> um it was punk, like sham 69 oi you know yeah uh but he starts the phone and goes, oi, oi. So you knew you were through to Gary. So me and Pete Mikowski, who was uh, by far the paper's most famous metal writer, but who also wrote about other things. But, you know, Pete was there long before Jeff was. Jeff was very much in Pete's shadow when it came to, you know, the guy that would go and interview Led Zeppelin or something like that. And Pete took to answering the phone in our corner of the office by going, a variation of things. It was either Danang or Kerrang or Kerrang. It was just a thing. And after a while, the Kerrang thing became sort of the one that got used most. I did it. Pete did it. You know, it was just a laugh. And so when the idea to do a feature in sounds uh, on one particular niche genre heavy metal and do it as a, it was a black and white paper do it as a color supplement it was just a sniggering joke that we called it Kerrang! you know it was just uh it was just boys having fun um and so i was involved in all that end of things but in in, in the three two or three years that had gone by since that i'd worked at record companies i'd done pr uh, I'd also been a dishwasher in a burger restaurant, a drug dealer, and various other forms of disgusting behavior. Um, so I came back to Kerrang. The time I came back to Kerrang, I was with a girl who I was desperate to impress. I mean, just an exotically gorgeous girl who was a speed freak and enti- entirely unfaithful, you know. But we lived together. And she had a, she, she was a mature student at St. Martin's College of Art, and she had all these arty young guys as friends who were always talking about amazing stuff. Meantime, I was uh, signing on welfare checks and working under an assumed name so I could still get my welfare checks at Heathrow Airport, cleaning out pots and pans. Now, when I say pots and pans, these things are the size of a man. You know, you virtually had to crawl inside them with a wire brush to clean them. Yeah. And it was 24-hour work. It was disgusting work. And I suddenly realized one day that to try and stop her fucking around, 
and maybe needs to do something. Like when people ask her, what does your boyfriend do? She needs to say something other than, well, he, he signs on, and then illegally, under a different name, he scrubs fucking shitpots at Heathrow, you know. <laughs> and um, I, I, and I, I literally just thought, what the fuck? So I knew Malcolm at Kerrang. When well, Kerrang came out every two weeks, and um, and I had a friend at Time Out magazine, which was a London's listings magazine, weekly, much cooler than Kerrang. And I finagled my way into doing two stories. The one for Time Out was an interview with uh, a young guy who wasn't world famous yet called Morrissey. And the one for Kerrang! was an interview with Trevor Rabin, um, who you know, just joined Yes in the last year or so. They had a new album called 90125 coming out. And I blagged my way into these interviews and both got published. And Time Out was cool, but, you know, I might get some stuff for them now and again. Kerrang! immediately kind of jumped on what I did and started offering me more work. And it was just at that moment when Jeff Bart uh, was made the editor of the magazine and he took me for a drink and just said, uh, listen, if you want to, you know, throw, throw your, your towel, not your towel, throw your hat in with us, sky's the limit. I'll never forget that phrase, sky's the limit. Yeah. So I went, okay. Now, now Mick, and that was the beginning. Now, Mick, when you were um, <laughs> going to interview an artist, other than the music, like you're talking pre-internet, what research did you do? None. None <laughs> you just went for a chat? Uh, yeah, because I, I wasn't primarily interested in the music. I mean, I, I I love rock music and metal music. I mean, I grew up buying albums by Hendrix, by Led Zeppelin. Um, loved rock music. But I also loved David, this is the early 70s, David Bowie and Elton John and Bob Dylan and blah, 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 Bob Marley. By the early 80s, years before Kerrang, I, I got heavily into jazz. I mean, I, for a while, jazz is a weird one because once you get into it, everything else sounds ridiculous. So you, uh, you know, if you're listening to Miles Davis and you go to Iron Maiden, there's, 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 there's no connect whatsoever. So I didn't, I really got lost in that world. Um, but the fact is, I'd always loved rock, and as a PR, I'd been a PR long before Kerrang. I'd worked with Finn Lizzy, I'd worked with Black Sabbath, I'd worked with Dire Straits, um, I'd worked with Ario Speedwagon, I'd worked with Journey, I'd worked with UFO. So I knew that world very, very well. Wild Horses, I worked with the Finn Lizzy offshoot band. I knew that world really, really well, and I loved the characters. So don't forget, in 84, when I, you know, just full-time writing for Kerrang, you've got Ronnie James, this is in the world at that time, the most prominent rock stars are selling millions. Ronnie James Dio, Ozzy Osbourne, Lemmy, David Coverdale, uh, Lars Ulrich, um, and then and then a whole pantheon of people like uh, you know the, you know your Def Leppards, your Bon Jovi's, your White Lions, all those sorts of people. But also bizarre characters like uh, the Mighty Thor. I don't know if you ever heard of him. But yep. He 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 looked and dressed like Thor, and played metal. And his his stage trick was halfway through the show he would he would blow up a hot water bottle just with his breath until it burst. Um, <laughs> there was girls' school, you know. Um, there would be groups like uh, Chainsaw Massacre. Rogue male, all these groups with really over the top images um, and larger than life characters, none of whom ever made it, but but were just these personalities on the scene, and um, it was just amazing fun. I mean, Finn Lizzie, ACDC, you know, it 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 it. it, it to me, it wasn't so much, I loved the music, but it wasn't, I thought, well, anybody can buy the music. You don't need me to tell you that was the better Finn Lizzy album than that other one. What you can't do is get in the room with them and hang out with them. And because I'd worked for record companies, because I'd done PR, I mean, at Virgin Records, I was the PR for the Human League, for Japan, for Simple Minds, for Culture Club. 
you know, I'd really done the whole spectrum. And so I knew, A, how much musicians essentially despised music journalists in those days because music papers were all powerful. They were the gatekeepers. Unless you were a pop group who were all over daytime radio, uh, you were a rock group who no one ever heard of apart from those real specialist, album-oriented evening or late-night shows. So the only way you had a, your, your social network in those days was to buy the music papers every week. And um, by the time Koran comes along, it's the 80s, it's CDs, the recession is over, there's millions swimming around in marketing and promotion and no way to promote Motley Crue. I mean, another large and life bunch of characters. Motley Crue, Iron Maiden, um, whoever it might be. And out of the music papers, the only one in Britain, in fact, the world for a while, that specialised in those kind of acts was Kerrang! Because at that time, post-punk in this country, rock and metal was, a, was so uncool, it was almost against the law, you know. So mm-hmm. you had this wonderful conflation of events. So you had record companies with zillions to spend willing to fly you anywhere in the world to go on tour for two weeks with the biggest bands in the world, Australia, Japan, North America, South America, anywhere you like, um, because you were going to put them on the cover of Kerrang! and that way they would sell another 25,000 albums in one week here in the UK, you know. Yeah. But you also had this moment in rock where you've got these giant, giant bands but we didn't know it then, but would never come along again. I mean, uh, I, I don't know who the giant bands of today are, but I can't, you know, that, that moment in rock and metal in the 80s was extraordinary. And of course, it was popular all over the world. Pop music would be popular domestically, but they might never have heard of you in Germany or France or America. Uh, this stuff was all over the world. And it didn't last two or three years. It lasted two or three decades. You know, it just went on and on and on. Yeah. So you became part of the furniture. You go, I, I, I did dozens of stories on Death Leopard, dozens on White Snake, dozens on Iron Maiden, dozens on Metallica, dozens on Guns N' Roses, another one, you know. And um, uh, you went back and you went back and you went back. And it wasn't a case of you got 30 minutes, you've got an hour. Um, it was, oh, you're coming out with us for a couple of weeks, aren't you? Great. And I'd learned from my days as a PR that what you don't want to do is sit there taking notes or shoving microphones under people's noses because they just become really aware that you're there and then they modify their behavior and, or they have little whispery conversations so you don't hear. I, I flipped it so that um, I totally wasn't in that world. I was just a party guy who loved listening to their stories yeah. and would prompt them to tell more and more and more, the best of which you got at 3 a.m. after three grams of Coke and four bottles of wine, you know. <laughs> um, I mean, the greatest interview I ever did was with David Lee Roth, and it lasted for over 12 hours. It took place, funnily enough, in, um, Massachusetts. in Worcester, Massachusetts. Yeah. Oh, you know this story, okay. I've read okay. your book, Well, you mate. know that story. Yeah. Okay, well, he wouldn't, he wouldn't let me take that. That was just us hanging out. And then the following night, uh, we did a kind of a 90-minute tape interview where we tried to remember some of the stuff that we were talking about the night before. <laughs> and and he, him being a pro, he came up with you know the right stories. But it wasn't in the same universe of... As, as what we had done for 12 hours straight the night before. I mean, it was, uh, those really were the days. And and so I didn't care if Roth was as good as he was in Van Halen or not. I was interested in that guy off the stage. I loved, by the way, I loved his show. And I thought in those days he was, he was amazing with Steve Vibank, you know, but it, that wasn't the important thing for me. It was fantastic. I mean, Jeff Lester was his theory for me. For me, that's absolutely one of the top five albums of the 80s in terms of, it was almost futuristic when it came out. It was so far ahead of the game and, and so much more sophisticated than people realize. Um, and I knew that at the time. I'm amazed when I go back and read stuff and I realize how spot it sometimes 
completely fucking off the hook, you know. But <laughs> you notice sometimes I'd be spot on, and I was so spot on with that. But that wasn't why for 13 months I went back to them five or six different times to write more and more stories. It was because they had stories to tell, not because I was writing about track three, side two of Hysteria, you know. Um, I, so the music was a, was my ticket to ride. But that I didn't go there to talk to them about music. I was never, ever, ever on the uh, conversationist. There might be a little bit just out of obligation, you know, well, they've got a new album out. Okay, let me guess. It's the best album you've done so far. You're really excited about it. This is going to be the best tour ever. Um, you know, it, it, you've had that conversation a million fucking times, and nearly 50% of the time it's bullshit. It turns out their new album actually sucks, or yeah. it, in retrospect, will be the worst thing they've done for five years. But at the time, they're there to tell you that, and you're there to write it down. Okay, done that bit. Now let's fucking talk about something real, yeah. you know? Yeah, no. So, no. so and, to, and to this day, that's that's all I'm interested in the story. Yeah. Now, Mick, tell me about that. You must have had a road trip from hell where everything went wrong. Is there one that sticks out? Oh God. Um, where the where the guy didn't want to do the interview. He was just fobbing you off. Getting to travel there was a oh, nightmare. Oh. Musicians hobbing you off for terrible reasons was, was fairly normal, but in those days you didn't go away. That's the thing. <laughs> uh, I mean, one, one, one typical occasion, and this doesn't stand out as being, you know, the worst, but just typical of what you're talking about was when we're going to Germany with Ozzy. Um, I'd probably known Ozzy about ten years at that time. Uh, we got to the stage where I'd go over uh, his and Sharon's house for Christmas. And, but he, he was either on the wagon or he was off the wagon. You never knew which Aussie would turn up. And on this particular occasion, it must have been in about 87, 88. <laughs> we're in Germany, we're in Germany. And, um, uh, we were there for, I say we, me and the photographer, we were there probably for three or four shows. I think that was the idea and write something on the road and an interview. And um, he did the first show, and then there was like a day off until the next show. So we're all staying in this hotel. And so the next day, the day off, great time to do the interview. And uh, I, I started getting fogged off. And, and there's only one reason Ozzy would do that, because he's pissed and he's always just fucking on a bender. So we were just laughing, was, you know, the rest of the band are in the bar, we're having a drink, and, and then the next day comes on, and it turns out he won't come to the door, he hasn't come out of his room in 36 hours. And at that point, Sharon wasn't on the tour, and at that point, the tour manager put in a, an emergency call to Sharon, and she flew out that day. He told her he wanted to retire, he wasn't going to do any more shows, fuck all this. And she basically told him to stop being a complete fucking idiot, get his fucking ass out the door, I'm going to kick the shit out of you. <laughs> so that's what he did. And then she went, and by the way, fucking Mick Walls here, do the interview. <laughs> so um, I finally did the interview. It was after the second show. in his him, him and Sharon in their room at about half 11 at night while she's sitting in bed. Um, and me and Ozzy are sitting across the way on the couch doing this interview. Um, and another time, you know, that was, there was a certain hilarity in that, but it was also a bit ghastly because you knew that behind all the antics, he was really hurting. Another time, Stone Temple Pilots, I went on the road with them in England in 94, something like that. And, um, uh, Scott Wyland, you know, I, I, I interviewed Scott again just before he died, and it was the same ridiculous palaver of endless cancelled uh, phone calls and meetings and fuck knows what else, to the point where I gave up, and then suddenly he ran. But in 94, we're on the road, and it's the same thing. We'll do it at 2 o'clock tomorrow, half to manager, oh, Scott's, he's, you know, unfortunately, he's got to comb his hair, you know, whatever it is, you know, and, uh, but the odd thing was, we had, um, he was in the next room to me at the hotel, for, I don't know why, but for the whole, 
five days we were away, he was always in the very next room. I mean, we would have had adjoining doors if they'd unlocked it, you know. And and these are English hotels, you know. You can you can hear the guy in the next room as clearly as you can hear yourself. Yeah. And I could hear him in there sobbing and wailing and smashing things up and 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 this went on for days. I just I can't remember the manager's name, like a Japanese American guy. I can't remember his name, but I said, "Listen, don't even fucking worry about it. Let's just get through this." Don't worry about the interview. We'll, we'll, we'll do something. And so in the end, we, after going on the road for five days, I ended up interviewing him at their hotel in London, which is where I lived in those days. And um, so again, there was a... And also by then, he'd shaved his head completely bald, and uh, which was a fairly shocking thing to do in those days. But we did a great interview. But he was clearly, in his case, clearly... It wasn't just a you know, a prima donna or a crazy rock star. It's a guy with some really serious problems. Yeah. So, um, so I, I, none of those I would call the road trip from hell. I don't, for me, the real road trips from hell weren't with famous people and they weren't always to do with magazines. I mean, uh, you know, one of my most horrible times is when I was a PR, when I was about 21 and 22 maybe. And I went on the road with Pat Travers' band. This is when Pat Fool was in the band. Uh, Tommy Aldridge was the drummer. And that guy, Mars, I forget his name, he was on the bass. It's a Crash and Burn album. That's how long ago this was. And I fucking hated it. I hated every fucking second. <laughs> the guy I was taking, the journalist, was a complete asshole. And we were sharing a room. I hate that. But in those days, when you're young, why not? Hey, you know, I hated this guy. By the end of it, I literally threw him against the wall and threatened to kill him, which is not generally how the PR treats the journalist, you know. So I knew I'd fucking blown it. And then Pat Travers turns out to be, in those days, he's probably lovely now. Total cunt, you know I mean? Like, fucking arsehole. And again, I lost it with him on the, in the hotel corridor. On the, you know, sorry, on the floor of where all the rooms were, a couple of floors up. And again, it's like one in the morning or something. And I fucking lit into it. Not physically, but just told him exactly what I thought. And it was funny because Tommy Hawtridge and Pat Thrall, we must have been in the same room, they opened their door to have a pee and they were giggling. What <laughs> a fucking asshole he was. And Travers just was devastated. I mean, you know, I, the next day I felt bad, but he, he, so he goes off and the other two come out and go, man, you've been wanting to say that to him for months. You were great. You were great. And I, I actually at the time didn't know what the fuck they were talking about because I was just uh, on the road trip from hell and that's how it ended. So I nearly killed the journalist and then I essentially fired myself from the tour by Telling Pat what a wanker he was. Yeah. Um, so, so that's the road trip from hell for yeah. sure. Now, Mick, I would recommend that to anyone. Mick, did you ever do an interview and the guy across from you is talking complete bollocks, and you're thinking to yourself, "I'm going to get no feature out of this at all." Oh yeah, all the time. <laughs> it, it it got to the point where the interviews were the least interesting part of it for me. I mean, by the end of my time on Kerrang sort of uh, 1991, 89 to 91, something like that, during that period, um, I gave up interviewing the bands. And um, then I had a laptop, so new invention, you know, so I'd come home to a hotel every night and uh, I used to just really, in shorthand, write down everything that happened that day write down anything, anybody said something funny or a funny story, because there's always funny stories happening on the road. Anything that had happened that day, even if it was just, even if I wrote, you know, six lines, you know, I just put it on the laptop. And by the time I got back, there'd be maybe, you know, 1,500, 2,000 words there of just often drunken gibberish of me before I go to bed, just trying to, just quickly, quickly, not like I'm writing, but just, like a text almost in the days before texts you know yeah. just quickly just write down what I'm like 
Jim said this, oh, Bob said that, ha ha, oh, and then, yeah, so and so fell over. And sometimes I, I would take a little bit of mini micro cassettes in those days. These days you just did digital recorder, but just a little handheld dictaphone. So there was none of this palaver of setting up microphones or we need to oh, keep the room quiet while we're doing the interview. I just would have this in my pocket, and as soon as someone said something interesting or funny, I'd just pull it out and go, say that again. And they'd say it again, because in the heat of the moment, you know, they were able just to quickly relate what they'd said, and I'd turn it, I'd put it back in my pocket. We hadn't done an interview. We hadn't spoiled the moment. Yeah. Uh, and again, I'd get back and just, you know, have 15 of these little snippets and type them up, and practically there's your story before you know it. So... um you know, as a PR, I used to couch journal, um, bands on what to tell journalists and what not to tell journalists. And this guy, he's an easy touch. And this guy's a little bastard. Be careful, you know. I also I remember once we, we, we used to do what was called regional press, which was your band is... Uh, we, one of the bands we did PR for was The Dad, and this is in 79. Uh, we did the album Machine Gun Etiquette. And a uh, big album in the UK. And they're doing big venues all over the country. Uh, they're doing like 30 different cities. So you set up interviews in the local papers in all the different cities. And you could end up phone interviews and you can end up pre-tour, you know, so they've done stuff when the band arrived in town. And you might have 50 phone interviews and you get two guys from the band to come in, just kind of 10-minute interviews, march through them. The Manchester Evening News, the Liverpool Echo, you know, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. And um, the Dan being the Dan, they came in, got pissed, got fucked up, and couldn't couldn't manage the interviews. <laughs> so I did them. <laughs> I was pretending that to I was like, yeah, it's right, yeah. No, no, I've always loved Liverpool, yeah. No. Oh, I've got some great mates there, yeah. Maybe Steve Street. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Their single was called Smash It Up. Like, no, no, come and smash it up. Yeah, Bob. No, my, my mum comes from Liverpool. Lies, lies. You know, you just say all this shit that I'd heard bands say a million fucking times. Yeah. Uh, channeled it and said it, and everybody went home happy. I did a better job than the band, you know. <laughs> so, the whole interview thing to me was just a joke long before I'd worked for Kerrang. So, I'd do it just to get the quotes. But you know what? I used to use the same cassette over and over again. Uh, I valued those things so little in those days. I wish I'd kept them now. But um, I remember interviewing Jimmy Page and the next day going off to interview Man of War, you know, and just taping over the Jimmy Page interview. <laughs> Talk to fucking, what's his name? Joey? Joey DeMaio. Joey DeMaio. Joey DeMaio, yeah. yeah. Yeah, fuck Jimmy Page talking about Led Zeppelin. <laughs> talking about metal will rule forever. We are the faithful and all this bollocks. You know? <laughs> so, um, Coverdale lying to you about why he sacked all his bandmates and why he's had plastic surgery. <laughs> I remember Coverdale always used to call me Michael. Hello, Michael. <laughs> and he would call you Richard. Hello, Richard. And if your name was John, he would say, hello, Jonathan. You know, it's like, and don't forget, this guy comes from Yorkshire. I mean, he had to have the elocution lessons. Yeah, Yorkshire, yeah. No fucking, <laughs> understand a fucking word the cunt said. Right? <laughs> he, was also, he was also cross-eyed and overweight, and they fixed that too. So, um, uh, I remember years ago, uh, I'd arranged for this um, female reporter I thought that would be, I was, just, I was an editor at Classic Rock, a woman to interview him, so I thought, you know, a woman, he'll just try and get in her pants because he can't help himself. And um, I wasn't there, but I was told this story. It so rings true. Uh, Ross Southin was there, and he told me that Coverdale, this is like the year 2000 when, does anybody even remember who he is at that point? And he turns up to the photo session with his own entourage, of course, and someone with their own tape recorder or digital recorder or whatever, just because everything he says, they're recording it for posterity, right? <laughs> and uh, so he does a session. Oh, David, no one leaves this room till we find David's glove, you know. 
And uh, uh, her name was Sean. And he turns to Ross. He goes, he'd never met her before. He goes, who's this bloody And Ross goes, she's standing behind you. And he turned around and he went, Sean, I look forward so much to meet you. <laughs> you know, rah, 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 rah. Another year after Black Sabbath, when Dio joined the band, and I mean, I went from that to washing dishes in a burger restaurant because I really hated that. And uh, well, me and Ronnie became good friends later. But I remember standing at the backstage door at the Hammersmith Odeon on the Heaven and Hell tour. They were doing like five nights there or something. And it was summertime, and uh, everybody wanted to go to those shows. I mean, there were hundreds of people trying to get in on the guest list and not just journalists but friends of friends old girlfriends groupies of groupies you name it and um, there was this one guy came to the door and he wasn't on the list he said no but if you let Ronnie know I'm here um, we're really old friends and, uh, and Ronnie just happened to flip by me in the background of this guy saying it and he goes oh Ronnie Ronnie and Ronnie looks at me and goes I can't remember the guy's name say it was Dave he goes Ronnie's like, Dave, hey man, come on, baby, good time. And, and Dave goes, I'm not on the list for it. He goes, hey, my man, Mick, you will fix that. Mick, you fix that. And then he disappeared around the corner. Something else broke in. You know, so I said, hang on a second, Dave, looking at my list. Next thing I go, psst, psst. I look, and it's Ronnie going, so. I go around the corner, and Ronnie goes, Do not fucking let that asshole in! <laughs> hey, that motherfucker! If I see him here, you're fired! <laughs> I go back, Dave's like, Me and Ronnie! And I said, Dave, uh, unfortunately, decisions aren't mine. That's what we always say. I've got to have to talk to the promoter. If you want to just uh, step aside and talk to the next guy. Yeah, yeah. Okay. But Ronnie said it was cool. I said, No, I know, but. It's bizarre, isn't it? It's their gig, but I really do have to run it by the promoter. We've got so many people. Blah, 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 blah. That helped me in so much as I didn't want to be that guy, you know? Yeah. Um, but, but at the same time, when I didn't realize that I was that guy, as far as they were concerned, I was getting all this bullshit about, you know, oh, you know, Scott's, you know, he's, he's, uh, he's just, he's just, sorting out his shoes, you know, something, you know. I used to think, all right, okay, I get it. So um, it, it held me in good stead. Yeah. Now, listen, Richie, I'm yep. sorry, I have to go. That's all right, Mick. That's all right. If you want to pick it up in a couple of weeks, I can contact you again and we'll do another half an hour to get an hour show out of it. Can I do that? Yeah. Maybe later in the year, something like that, we could do something different. Yeah, sure, Mick. All right, have a good rest of the day. I'll leave you get back to work. All right, mate. All, all right, best. Mick. Thanks for your time. Bye. Cheers. Bye. All right. Big thanks to the one and only Mick Wall uh, for finally gracing us with a, a little bit of his uh, very, very uh, busy time. Any of our longtime listeners will uh, remember how many times we've tried and failed to have Mick on. But uh, I'm sure Richie would agree that uh, the Kerrang! Project would not be complete without some words from uh, from Mick Wall. And as I mentioned before, uh, make sure that you catch Mick and Joel on their uh, their new show, Dead Rock Stars. And also, just do yourself a favor next time you're uh, browsing up on Amazon, just uh, just pop Joel's name in under the author search and see all the great books he's got out there. And uh, maybe pick up one or two or ten of them. So we got one more guest as it stands right now in our Kerrang! series. That's a pretty uh, pretty long piece of audio that Richie did. So I may actually split that one up into two separate episodes with perhaps a little commentary on one of those with uh, Richie and myself. Just kind of recapping the whole Kerrang! project and uh, just kind of giving some general final thoughts on the subject. Unless, of course, Richie uh, pops up with yet another Kerrang! guest, which I uh, absolutely would not put it past him. But as far as this episode of our Kerrang! series, stick a fork in it. This puppy is done. In the meantime, you can always keep up with us at focusonmetal.net, focusonmetal.blogspot.com. While you're uh, hitting up Dead Rockstar 666 on Facebook, you can also travel over and uh, talk with Richie. And, of course, you can always keep up with us on Twitter. But, uh, anyways, for this week, that's it. Until we talk to you again next week, for Richie, myself, and everybody else here at Focus on Metal, have yourselves a great Metal Week, 
And as always, remember Focus on Metal! Everything else is insignificant. Still here? It's over. Go home.